Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello, and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. This is Brandy Schilace, Editor-in-Chief, and today I'm here with Dr. Kimberly Campanello, who is a poet and an academic and is also uh, going to enlighten us a bit today about being someone with disabilities and a writer and a creator in all of those ways. So welcome, Kimberly. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk with you today. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I, I mentioned to Kimberly when we first started talking that I was going to put a bio together, but there's a lot. So, <laughs> um, I'll let you go. Yeah. So I've always been a writer. I've always been someone who writes and reads, you know, literature, poetry, everything all through high school in Indiana. And ultimately I needed to get out of Indiana for various Indiana reasons. A long story short, I ended up in the UK and Ireland writing poetry, writing and publishing poetry, and also um, doing creative writing PhD and becoming a creative writing academic, teaching um, and leading in practice research, which is which is great and really, really well resourced in, in the UK and Europe. So yeah, so I, I've lived in Ireland, I've lived in the UK, I've lived in France, I've lived a bit uh, more recently, spent a lot of time in Italy all over the U- the US. I haven't lived in Indiana since I was 18. So Alabama, Florida, right. Cincinnati, um, <laughs> the both Cincinnati, sides of that's Florida. A, yeah, that's as close, it's as close to us as you've come. So I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, of course. Okay. I, I have also lived, I lived in Arizona. I, I actually did my part of my dissertation research in Scotland. So I've lived over there. So yeah, the muchness of the world is something yes. that I think a writer likes to explore. <laughs> exactly. So I suppose the way I come at sort of medical humanities or chronic illness and disability is, well, while I was in Cincinnati, I did an MA in, in gender. Well, they changed it from women's and gender studies to women's gender and sexuality studies, which is what I actually have on my certificate. And, you know, I was aware of crip theory. I was aware of mm-hmm. quite a lot around that because it was a brilliant course that I did at the University of Cincinnati. But experientially, um, you know, it wasn't my experience. and uh, you know, fast forward and I was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's in 2021 mm-hmm. and have since, um, you know, had a whole lot of experiences <laughs> that, uh, come from that diagnosis and, um, have increasingly been writing about that. So previously mm-hmm. I've written a lot about what I guess I would broadly call erotic autonomy. So I wrote about mother and baby homes. I've written about sort of church and state and um, mm. all, all those sorts of issues in, in my work, um, which isn't a million miles away uh, from, from, from right. some of this, so certainly because in, in the mother and baby homes, you know, so many, so many children and, and so many of the women in them were specifically targeted for having um, illness or disability and, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. deemed not um, of value. So, right. yeah. So then I, I started writing uh, on this subject and, um, I applied for a developing your creative practice grant through the arts council in England, because I really felt like, Hey, I want to spend some time, um, well, with some mentoring. So with some writers who Mm -hmm. have 
thought about this before over a longer period of time. And also just get some advice on things like, how do you navigate, you know, gigs? Um, Cause at first I just stopped, I stopped doing gigs because I thought, gosh, I, you know, it was post COVID. So we also weren't doing anything in person. Mm-hmm. So, so that right. sort of thing. So, and then I also was, um, had the grant to go to the world Parkinson's Congress, which maybe we can talk mm-hmm. about a bit later. So that's yeah. kind of where we are. So I've written some pieces on it in prose and in poetry. Um, and, and that's where I am. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting. Uh, for those of you who listen to our podcast regularly, you'll have heard Alice Wong on here a couple times and, um, and Alyssa Burgard and, and several other folks. We talk a lot about disability and it, and, uh, the way it changes your sense of embodiment. Um, I have a chronic illness and a disability, which mine are sort of invisible. I have those invisible ones, you know, where everyone just kind of, <laughs> you look all right. So. Mm. everyone kind of does misses it and then i think that almost encourages a kind of uh masking on the part of of someone like myself where i I pretend not to be ill even when i am um but you can't get away from the embodiedness of of experience which is new to someone like me i live a lot in my head uh Mm. some of that's autism some of that's just how i'm built and to suddenly sort of be forced to recognize the body in its in its joy in its sorrow in its erotica in its mundane you know all of these different facets so i was wondering first probably you might need to say a few words to our audience members who might not be familiar with mother and baby homes um particularly in the context in which you were looking at them but also that sense of uh of body context it's not like it's never there it's always there but the way in which it becomes so um centered i think when you have to think about your body a lot well, firstly, so the mother and baby homes were run um, all around Ireland and the UK and um, by often by religious institutions on behalf of the respective states. And that is where women were sent who um, became pregnant and who uh, were not resourced to have their children or to make uh, their reproductive decisions. It actually led to quite a lot of children being sent to the United States or to other countries sometimes illegally, sometimes coercively, sometimes uh, we don't even know. Um, and so mm-hmm. more recently in Ireland, there have been a number of you know stories that have broken around that, um, not least the tomb. There were children like buried literally right. in septic tanks, which is what my work is about. And so I, I began writing about that because I grew up in Indiana down the road from the University of Notre Dame, going to mass at the Basilica and lighting candles at the, at the grotto. So <laughs> I felt very connected to that to that pathway between the the Irish uh, uh, Catholic institutional context and the way the Americans, yeah, um, you know that circulates. And so one of the ways that circulates, of course, is through the control of certain bodies and mm-hmm. through language and and also quite directly. Um, so yeah, and then in terms of the, the feeling of your body, yeah, absolutely. I mean that that's something that I've been exploring a lot in my work. I'm, I've got a long poem in Granta. It's online. So if people want to check it out, it's called Moving Nowhere Here. <laughs> and it's quite philosophical about these very questions. And mm. um, I've also got a, a short piece that maybe I could just read these two paragraphs because it kind of does exactly what we're talking about, if that's yes, right. Because why don't you? Why don't you do that? And also, I will just tell our listeners, we um, this is always going to be part also that we have an attendant blog post that will go up. So there will be links there as well. So yeah, please, please read. 
So this is from Paradoxical Kinesia, a, a little short piece. And I write from the perspective of Kay. So the poet Kay finds herself in all of these situations and reflects a lot on what it is to make poetry or what it is to make art or to make anything at all when your body is is doing what it's doing in, in the world in which uh, it is. This issue of Some Such Stories was just released actually today. So it kind of Ooh, describes a bit about pleasure. what you're... Yeah, thanks. It kind of describes... These are just two paragraphs of it, so it's a teaser. But um, so, so K is in the crypt, which actually is the crypt uh, by Notre Dame. And at the All end right. of the piece, K reflects upon Quasimodo and the portrayal of Quasimodo. K attempts to walk normally and then limp dramatically through the exhibit. Her illness has decoupled brain from body when it comes to many things especially walking. She appears drunk or threatening to the peace or vulnerable to attack like an animal that has been hit by a car. To walk, she deploys cues her physiotherapist taught her, which for a brief stretch can make her movement seem, if not feel, fluid. When tired, she tries consistent limping, an attempt to signify something intelligible is wrong, like an ankle sprain. Both approaches attract either no attention or some sympathy. She is unable to maintain either series of movements for very long. Kay often tells her writing students not to spend precious language moving characters around. Unless the way a character moves is important, skip it. Let the reader assume they have moved based on what is around them and what they say and do. Kay thinks the way she moves now could be significant, but wonders how much weight this should be given in any story. She thinks the miraculous qualities of even the simplest movements may well deserve language. She estimates how much space it would take up if done wholeheartedly. The struggle past the school group, rubber boots squeaking at irregular intervals, a tremoring arm jammed under a backpack strap to hold it close, not for physical benefit, but for the comfort of others, so she, the character, can be with them. This being with others stands for something she can't quite imagine the writer conveying. So I suppose it gets a, a few of the things that you were describing. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, the, the, the body and space. And I, I would also, um, say that it's a, it's a queering of the narrative too, isn't it? Because, mm. you know, the, the, the desire of, of normalcy that people want you to occupy space in a very specific way. Or else they think you are. I love your use of the idea of drunk and disorderly. I really appreciate those two, the terms kind of following on each other because the, the ease with which, um, that becomes a, oh, okay, I can deal with this because I have now put them in the box of this is a disorderly, this is a drunk and disorderly person. I can, I, I don't have to think about that now. So, you know, it's, it's also, it's a label that erases. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think. That's something that I've been trying to think about is how so many of the experiences that we have are not intelligible. And so by by having this poet K, this character K, I can kind of make her thinking about it intelligible, but also perhaps how other people might be thinking about it as a process. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, pro the process of her thinking through, hey, I'm now realizing I've been telling my students not to describe people moving around, but hey, it's really hard to move. I think part of it is because I've been writing these, you know, all along kind of in, in, mm -hmm. in medias race is my own realizations and my own confrontations with the variations 
of my experience. And, you know, paradoxical kinesia is this thing that you get with Parkinson's where you can like go over difficult terrain or like I can do the Stairmaster until the cows come home, but I can't like walk to the, to the shop. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can do difficult things, but you can't often do the easy things because you've lost the automaticity. And similarly, mm-hmm. I have one called paradoxical kinesia. I've got another one called tachyphylaxis, you know, so the idea that you're, there's going to be a drop off in the eff- efficacy of your meds. And so I try to think about that in relation to obviously the literal experience of tachyphylaxis, but also the way we can experience that with our actual, like in our everyday lives or with art, you know, what is it when we can't feel anything anymore <laughs> about mm-hmm. something? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, and try and trying to work through some of that medicalized language, which I know in the medical humanities is such a valuable perspective, you know, the idea of the desired effect, which mm-hmm. I was told, well, I said, well, what's the desired effect? And it's like, well, that's determined by you. And I'm like, well, who am I? <laughs> because <laughs> who, who am I if I keep changing because these meds are changing my brain chemistry? So how will I know what the desired effect is because my brain chemistry will have changed? <laughs> so the, yeah, no, you know, it's, it's those kinds of those kinds of questions are, um, you know, you have to laugh at them at a certain point because it, it throws you immediately into some of the kind of deep philosophical questions of, you know, most of the kind of 20th century critical theory. And you're, and you're just trying to get your meds, like <laughs> trying to figure out what your dose is, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I try to but kind of know, keep that humorous perspective where I can mm-hmm. in the writing itself, um, which yeah. it's not just for you know, my benefit, it's for the benefit of others, but it's for the benefit of the range of emotions that you might have in a given moment around illness and around disability. You know, you you don't all, it's not all one note, you know? So when I've read some of this work, another piece that's in this literary magazine called Tolka, I read it, I read from it in Dublin and I, and people were laughing and crying and like kind of going through all these emotions through this as Kay is experiencing all these things. And I'm thinking, well, that's what I'm trying to achieve because it isn't mm-hmm. a one note thing. You know, you're not just even in sort of 45 seconds. It's it's not the same experience, yeah. which is hard to capture, well, but I'm doing my best anyway. <laughs> so. But I think, too, it's difficult to capture. But I would say it's it's even more difficult to communicate, to articulate, mm-hmm. to translate, mm-hmm. translate that experience. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I write fiction as well as nonfiction. And in my most recent book, it'll be coming out in February. The main character, it's a it's a mystery novel. The main character is autistic, like myself. Uh, and I decided the best way to portray that was you're inside her head first. And then there's another character who also gets like first person perspective. So then you're inside their head watching her. And so you tend to see a lot of overlapping scenes. So you see things make perfect sense to her. She's like, this is a really sensible way to behave. And then you see what other people see. And you're like, no, you look like you are out of your mind. So um, it, that that attempting to balance that and like you said to make it humorous but also grounding it in the disabled experience first so that the reader approaches it and goes yeah i would i get that i would behave that way that makes sense you know and then showing them what that looks like because i i think destabilization of our viewpoints is necessary and while you can do it in fiction poetry is almost the better genre for that i don't know if it's the better genre i just it just kind of depends on what people want to read, I suppose. But I mean, that's kind of why I've written this prose stuff from the perspective of the poet K, because I'm such a poet, I have to write prose about poetry. <laughs> but I also think, as you were saying, when you're trying to break down that experience for people, it can be quite challenging for them to hear. 
that's been really interesting because I've not obviously had this experience until recently of reading my work mm-hmm. out to an audience in which I'm saying things that they are not sure how to respond, which is mm-hmm. when you have an illness or disability, we experience that all day long. Right, <laughs> People are right. like, oh, you're too young for that. Oh, but you look really great. Oh, but you're really strong. Oh, but you know. Oh, aren't you so positive? Oh, I've learned all these things from you, right? All the- <laughs> right, <laughs> so you, right, you get right. The, you get that all day long, but then when you're reading your work, you actually kind of have the floor, and you mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. the way a way of of distilling, uh, you know, what you want to communicate, but also what you want to feel yourself about what you've experienced, and that's what's interesting about this kind of more memoiry stuff I'm doing in the third person is I'm like, I'm slightly taking control of the way to think about some of these things that have mm-hmm. been quite, quite troubling. Yeah. I can, I can kind of make it happen again. Uh, I don't change it, but it changed, it's changed in my, my line of sight, which is, I think another thing mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's almost like some people I find think that because you're ill, you, you never change your mind about anything or you've always got this view of everything. And it's like, no, I feel like it's made me more, uncertain about many things but kind of Mm -hmm. in another way okay with that um but it takes a lot of work to be okay with that (laughs) yeah yeah alice wong one of the things she had said in our interview was about how you know for the disabled person everything is an uncertainty like it's an uncertainty that you're going to like you know get get fed today like there's so many uncertainties that it's actually true of everyone but most yeah. of us are able to ignore it. You know, yeah. most of us can pretend that the job we do tomorrow, <laughs> we'll get up and go to work tomorrow and we'll still have a job and we'll still have all these things. And then, you know, in fact, none of us know if that is, if that's <laughs> what we don't know, if we're going to get hit yeah. by a bus tomorrow. You know, there's so many things that are uh, uncertain in the world and you have to, um, you can't ignore it when, when you're a disabled person. Or I should also mention terminal illness because, uh, Arabella Proffer has also been on our show. She has terminal cancer. And uh, she's said to me very similar things that people don't know. You're like, hi, I'm dying of cancer. They're like, oh, they, they don't know what to do with that. You know, it's mm. such a um, it's such a disruption. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's something that I've been thinking a lot about is you, the symbol, you know, symbolizing something for someone else. The difference between my insight or the, what you're describing, you know, the insight into existence yeah. versus, versus symbolizing the insight into existence for someone else, mm-hmm. which is a di- very different thing. And mm-hmm. I think that that's something that I've been thinking a lot about is how to, how to, can how to do that. Um, and, and in the end of this story that I was just reading from, you know, Kay is reflecting upon how, you know, um, Notre Dame de Paris and Quasimodo and the way Quasimodo is perceived is in part what saved Notre Dame Cathedral from being mm. torn down. And she wonders, like, what would what is it to have what's going on with your body, like symbolize something and save a, a national treasure? Like, yeah, like, yeah. What's up, like, what's up with that? Like, <laughs> so, you know, why is it why are these corollaries so powerful? That's one of the questions that she asks at the end. And. I mean, we kind of know why, because at the end of the day, I think we're all afraid of death and we're all really, really afraid of of any kind of dependency, even though, as you say, mm-hmm. we're all already dependent um, on each other, even if we try to shield ourselves in, in every possible way. 
but yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with the way you've described that. It's a beautiful thing that I think the the work that that you're doing, and of course, you were a poet long long before this this aspect of your poetry has come about. And so, um, as we're we have about five minutes left in the podcast, I wonder if you can say a bit about how uh, the experience of being a poet has it changed at all as you've moved from uh, you know the the earlier works to works post this diagnosis. Is it the same? Is it is it different? In, in what ways? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because I'm editing my next poetry collection because I have to give it to my editor. And obviously this stuff was written before I was diagnosed, but when I was experiencing things that I couldn't explain. And so the angle on it is is there. It's almost mm-hmm. like the it's so you see certain things in your work that are kind of latent. And when you have an illness like Parkinson's that's accumulates and degenerates over a long period of time, you kind of see your perspective on the world, I think being affected by, by that. I mean, I, I, I do think it's there. It's just not directly being addressed in quite the same way that I'm addressing it in mm-hmm. some of these pieces. In my more recent work, I've been working on a kind of poetic novel type thing. And it certainly comes up in that, but I'm trying, I'm not trying. It just is part of it because mm-hmm. it's already there as opposed to being in the foreground, like those titled pieces I said. So I, I mean, I kind of anticipate vacillating between it being, the, you know, the stated aim and and the thing that's around. I don't think it's ever going to not be around. Obviously, it's like figure in background, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I also think, you know, when you can't when you can't walk or you can't walk far or when you can only walk in pain, and you're someone who's a writer who's used to being able to do that. That is like a really powerful thing that has transformed how I think about space and time and energy. I mean, all of these things that we think about with crypt time, you know, um, mm-hmm. it has totally changed my uh, perception of that in that some of the things that I thought were so, I now know are so <laughs> about space <laughs> and time, you know, so I'm kind of like, aha, you know. <laughs> So, I mean, I mean, I guess as a poet, you, you kind of have these philosophies kind of inbuilt about the nature of reality and all, all these sorts of questions. And when I first first diagnosed, I kind of made a list of things that I thought were I had going for me, basically. And one of them was, well, I love arts and the humanities, so I kind of have a philosophy of life worked out. So at least I've got that. <laughs> so this is, this is the to sell the medical humanities, right? They- we yeah. have a philosophy of life. <laughs> yeah, and we and the philosophy is we have to keep asking questions and thinking it through and talking to each other. You know, it's not like a final, final moment. You know, and that's right, what's so, right. so valuable about it because you have to connect in order to do it. And, and here, you know, at the Medical Humanities, the journal, we don't actually publish poetry. It's a research journal, but we do. We have uh, published pieces talking about. Uh, research using poetry for mm. various things, um, to, in grief processing, in, uh, I think there was one about cancer patients. I've, I've kind of a little bit lost track, but one of the things I, I was asked early on is, well, why don't you also publish poetry? And I said, well, because I love poetry and I, I don't think an academic journal is quite, <laughs> is quite where, where it needs to be. But what I, I do respect is grappling with it as an actual tool around which we can talk about other kinds of things. So for instance, it's not just a poem because it's a poem, but that poetry, as is true of many of the humanities, also gets at things like 
history and sociability and community. And, you know, um, because the medical humanities is not just a work, it's, it's a connection. Uh, we believe that the medical humanities is a great connection for social justice and accessibility and all sorts of other things for, for some of the same reasons that poetry is, right? It makes a, a point of connection between people and between, uh, subjects, which I think is really powerful. Absolutely. And I think the, you know, the thing that poetry does is it shows you that there's more than one thing going on at the same time, which. Yes. Which and more than one interpretation. <laughs> yeah. And we definitely know that's true in, in our experiences, as you described with your, the way your novel is set up. And I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, I'm just, just a keen um, believer now, certainly that they really need us. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. The medics, the researchers, they really, really need, they really need us. And, uh, and I've seen a lot of transformative conversations happen when, when people are opened up to, to, to these sorts of viewpoints. So hopefully Absolutely. that will just keep building momentum. Well, like I always tell people, um, if you don't, if medicine doesn't have a human at the center of it, then it's, 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 it's not really medicine. <laughs> you're doing, you've done something wrong. So the humanities is a, a way of centering the human. And I'm so glad that, uh, that we all get to be part of it together. Thank you so much for Thank being with you. us, Kimberly. Thank all of you for listening and being part of the conversation. There will be a transcript on our blog of today's show, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore BMJ.